our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Schadenfreude. That's the nothing personal word of the day today. I was thinking about Avenue Q, a great Broadway musical, actually written by people who went to the law school I went to, Cardoza School of Law in New York, part of Yeshiva University. So schadenfreude is a word that you use when you feel happiness at the misfortune of others. So what exactly does that mean? That means that when someone's running for the elevator and they don't make it, as an example, and secretly you're happy that they didn't make it because you don't have another stop to get to your apartment or your office. That's schadenfreude. Or when someone is getting online at a restaurant where you're eating fast food and they get a phone call and they have to get off the line, you then skip them and get closer to eating. Or in sports, when you root against other teams and you root for bad things to happen, but you don't admit it to anyone but you secretly want things to go wrong for other teams. That's also called schadenfreude. Happiness at the misfortune of others. I have that all the time. I try not to admit it. It's not very nice, but everyone has it. Now, I'm not asking for injuries, life-threatening diseases. I'm not asking for any of that. I'm asking for small inconveniences, like a ground ball in between your legs, or a strikeout, a swinging strikeout where you can't see the ball or something that happens, maybe a small little sickness in your tummy that's only seven hours that makes it so your best pitcher can't pitch against us. Or when the Mets play the Phillies and I want it to end in a tie and go 20 innings because we're playing one of those teams the next day. That's all schadenfreude. We all feel it. It's totally normal. That's the nothing personal word of the day. How about Tom Coughlin? People say Coughlin, Coughlin. I call him a Super Bowl winning coach. My Giants, two Super Bowl rings. Without him, Eli Manning's not going to the Hall of Fame. Without him, he would just have been an average player. So Tom Coughlin then says, I'm done coaching. Let me go to Jacksonville, where he was the first coach in franchise history. Except I'm not going to coach. I'm going to be the president of baseball operations, the GM. I'm going to run the whole show. We've talked about it before. Being a player is far different than being a coach. Being a coach is far different than being a GM. Being a GM is different than being a president. And being a president is different than being an owner. Just because you're a good coach does not mean you're going to run the football operation as well as you think you will or as well as your owner thinks you will. So Jacksonville has been a disaster. We've talked about it. There was a huge grievance that the Jaguars just lost, and they fined a player $700,000 for skipping off-season workouts at their own stadium in Jacksonville, and that violated the collective bargaining agreement. The grievance was lost by the Jaguars, and two days later, two days later, Shad Khan fired Tom Coughlin with two games left in the regular season. Why in the world would he do it now and then say in the release, 
Well, I was going to fire him after the season anyway, so I just decided to do it now so we can approach these last two games with no distraction. I'm not sure it works that way. The Jaguars are going nowhere at all, nowhere quickly, I would argue. And the funny part is that firing your GM or president now with two games left is completely irrelevant. Now, does it change the players you have on your team? Does it change your coach? It doesn't do any of those things. Is it too late for the 2019 season? It's way too late. So what else could have happened? Well, here's what I think went on. Very often when I was uh, in baseball, there would be uh, things going on with the Marlins, and I'd hear from the commissioner, and we'd talk about these events, and the commissioner would say, what is your plan? What are you doing to try to turn the narrative? What is your plan to try to get better coverage, to try to get away from all of the sort of distraction of this grievance and of all the things that you've done that we just fought for you to accomplish and you end up losing in an arbitration, in a grievance. I think the NFL was very much in touch with the Jacksonville Jaguars and their owner, Mr. Khan, and I think they made it clear that what Tom Coughlin was doing was unacceptable because there were rumblings from other players. Jalen Ramsey has even come out today talking about the fact that he's not surprised at all talking about that the Jaguars weren't taken seriously given the way they'd find players. 10000 bucks if they missed a mandatory yoga session. Believe me, I'm not pro-player. I'm definitely pro-management. But a mandatory yoga session? I can't touch my toes. And I don't care if football players can touch their toes. I want to make sure they can tackle properly, catch the ball, throw the ball, and try not to get injured or arrested. Those are my only requirements. In baseball, it was the same. Show up, be ready to play 162 games, and try not to take any mug shots during the course of a season. That's not asking too much. No yoga. But then the Jaguars find the player 10 grand for not showing up at the yoga class? That's a problem. That's when the commissioner's office is going to step in and say, listen, we want this distraction over with. There's no way that Coughlin is going to continue. So, given that, what did Khan do wrong? If you're going to fire him with two games left, there is no reason in the world to put in your release that you were going to fire him at the end of the year. Because then it forces Coughlin to make a statement which says, hey, I was going to leave right at the end of the year. All of a sudden, you have competing statements. It's like dueling pianos. Ever been to a dueling piano bar? I love it. It's especially great like an hour and a half in when you've had a chance to enjoy other things that the dueling bar has to offer. So the dueling pianos, they're always playing against each other. So when you've got statements, when you fire an employee and you're not controlling the statements that come from that employee, all of a sudden you're in a position where you have to be reactive. So now the Jaguars are dealing with a former team president, someone who means a lot to their organization, coming out and saying, listen, I appreciate the Jaguars. I will always be their first coach of the franchise, but I was going to leave. Really? I'm not familiar with any employee ever who's left in the middle of a contract. So was his idea he was just going to walk away from the money? He was going to resign? Now, I'm all in for bad players resigning, for bad managers resigning, and for bad GMs resigning because then you don't have to pay him. I've never heard of such a thing. Imagine if a player who's ineffective, who has a guaranteed contract, walks in your office and says, you know what? I don't want to raise. I've been so bad. I'm just going to walk away and you can keep my money. I'm, I'm speechless on a podcast Video and audio, because I'm trying to understand why anyone would ever do that. Oh, that's right. 
no chance Coughlin would have done it. So now Khan has to get together with Coughlin. They have to probably do one more statement where they're going to explain what they're looking to do for the future of the Jaguars. And Coughlin's going to have to do a little bit of, shall I say, um, recuperation of his talents in order to get another job with another team. His reputation has been completely tarnished by these loss of grievances. But the Jaguars' reputation, by the way they've dealt with this, has gotten hurt even more. So these big contracts that are being signed in baseball, I want to cover a different part of them today. Word came out from Ken Rosenthal, and Ken Rosenthal didn't make it up. I assume he saw a copy of the contract. That's really the only way you could come up with this. So let's talk about these opt-out provisions. We talked for a minute about the opt-out provision that Steven Strasburg had. He had four years left, and he opted out, and then he signed a new seven-year, $245 million deal. We talked about the fact that players only opt out of their contracts when they know for sure that they can get more money and more years from another team or from their existing team. So sometimes you opt out of your deal like Clayton Kershaw did with the Dodgers. He opted out of his deal with the Dodgers to re-sign with the Dodgers. A-Rod opted out of his contract with the Yankees to re-sign with the Yankees. Strasburg opted out of his contract with the Nationals to re-sign with the Nationals. So that happens. But when you sign a free agent who's switching teams, very often you have to include an opt-out or even when you sign your own player. When we signed Giancarlo Stanton, we signed into a 13-year, $325 million deal, a record at the time, which has since been broken by Bryce Harper. uh, And that's it. Interestingly enough, and I texted this, Trout got more than 325 as well. But when Cole got 324, I texted Giancarlo. I said, hey, you still got him by a mill. And that was was a funny exchange. So here's what Stanton's opt-out was. After six years of the deal, so it's actually after this coming season, he has a chance to opt out, and he'll have seven years left. He'll have seven years and $210 million left. Or he can stay in the contract and... Take that 210 over 7, opt out, try to get more than 210 over 7 from another team or from the Yankees themselves. Obviously, he's going to have to be healthy and have an MVP-type year, and then you never know. What Cole has is a provision I've never seen. It's never been negotiated. No agents brought it up. No team's ever thought of it. And it's a fascinating evolution of a provision that is bad, bad, bad for the team and good, good, good for the player. But now there's a provision that's sort of coming a little bit back to center. So let's discuss it. Garrett Cole's new opt-out provision says that after five years of his deal, of his nine-year deal, he can opt out of his contract. Now, he pays straight line, $36 million a year for nine years. That equals $324 million. So after five years, he can opt out. He will have... Four years left at 36, which is $144 million left. So he's got to go get a contract that is greater than four years and $144 million. So greater than $36 million a year for four years would be more money. Or he can go longer, like six years, and only get paid $30 million a year, and that'd be $180 extra million versus the $144. So the player will opt out if he can get more money, more years, or some combination. But this opt-out provision, once Garrett Cole exercises it, the Yankees have the right to void his opt-out. It's like an idle 
nullifier from Survivor's finale last night, which we're going to talk about later in the show. If Cole opts out, the Yankees can actually notify him and say, nope, there is no longer an opt-out. And in return for getting rid of Cole's opt-out, the Yankees have to add a 10th year to his deal at the same number, $36 million, making the entire contract a 10-year, $360 million contract. So he'd get 360 over 10, which is 36 a year. But in order to do that, he has to opt out after five years. So how is this going to play out? Here's how. So picture five years from now, at the end of the 2024 season, the Yankees have won a World Series. Cole has had five seasons that are some great, some good, some mediocre, because in five seasons, the odds are that's what he'll have. He then has the decision to make, what do I do? If I opt out, the Yankees have two choices, and I'm holding up a three for those of you watching. Two choices. One, the Yankees can then void the opt-out and give him that 10th year, which means that after the opt-out, he'll have another five years left at $36 million a year, which will have him pitching into his 39th year on this earth. Or the Yankees can say, hey, Garrett, you opted out. You're now a free agent. Good luck finding another team. And to make it even for Garrett Cole, he'd have to find another team who would either pay him the $144 million over four, which is what he would have gotten had he not opted out, or the 180 over five, which is what he would get if the Yankees had voided his opt-out and giving him that extra year in his contract. So there's an entire new level of conversation that has to take place. We've never had this sort of chess game before. When we give a player an opt-out, we know very well that that player will use it as a sword, as a sword to make more money if he can or to get overpaid if he's not playing well and can't beat what he has. That's what an opt-out is. But now the opt-out has a sword component for the team as well as the player. The team could tell Cole, hey, if you opt-out, I'm gonna, we're going to avoid your opt-out and give you the 10th year, and Cole could be very happy to get that 10th year at $36 million. Then Cole could opt out, and the Yankees could change their mind. They're not contractually obligated to void the opt-out once Cole opts out. It is their option. So if Cole is only a mediocre pitcher, but he still thinks he can make more than the 144, he'll opt out, the Yankees could void it. Now the chess move goes back to Cole. Cole doesn't want to be in that position. So now Cole has to do what I'm telling you every player does. Before Cole opts out, and before he knows whether the Yankees will void his opt-out and keep him for a 10th year, or just let him go, Garrett Cole has to find a new team. He has to do a full negotiation. Under the tampering rules, it's a violation, but everyone tampers. You've heard me say it on Nothing Personal. Cole will have to get a new deal with Scott Boris's agent, assuming Boris is still his agent, and go out there and see if he can do better. So you've got two components to this Cole opt-out. We're not going to mention it again for four more years. But when the time comes, if Cole is still a premium pitcher, it is going to be fascinating. Because the chances of a 10-year, $360 million deal for a pitcher, of him being effective for those full 10 years, is de minimis. So if he's great the first five years and the Yankees opt in to his 10th year by voiding Cole's opt-out, 
they could be stuck with five years of misery. It's going to be fascinating to watch, and I can't wait. The other thing from his uh, press conference, his press conference was yesterday. We covered it. I'm not going to cover what went, went on again. Go back and listen. I appreciate that you download, subscribe. Please rate, review. Five stars is helpful. I appreciate that. But people went crazy on Twitter, and I, don't, I, don't, I really don't understand what happened. So they presented Cole a uniform, and on Cole's Yankee uniform was a Nike swoosh. And people lost their minds. What's the big deal that there's a Nike swoosh on a uniform? Why is it that traditionalists call themselves traditionalists and say, we don't want to gussy up the uni by putting any sort of marks? Because the only brand that matters is the brand of the team. We want it to be clean. What right do any of you have to tell people in baseball how to increase revenue and how to make their business better? When you walk into In-N-Out Burger, do you get offended that there's an In-N-Out logo on the napkin? I'm wiping my mouth with that logo. I don't want In-N-Out to do that. Well, they do. Do you get upset when you go on an airplane and you see the logo of Delta everywhere? Do you get upset when you watch the English Premier League and you see corporate sponsors all over the jersey? What about the indie race circuit? The guy drinking milk after the Indy 500, he's a walking billboard. Does it bother you? You know why that's happening. Do you buy from those products because you associate those products with those players? Do you buy Nike because it's on the jersey? Well, guess what? You actually do. You may not realize it because half of it is subliminal. Do you know what subliminal advertising is? I digress for one minute. I learned about subliminal advertising when I was in high school at Horace Mann in New York. And I was taught, when you go to a movie theater, it used to be that you go to movies, not stream them, you actually go to a theater. And they would use subliminal advertising to get you to buy the $5 Cokes, hot dogs, popcorn, and candy. You wouldn't realize that it's making you hungry and thirsty, but they'd be playing noises like water noises. They would be showing you um, advertisements and cartoons that had food in them. And all of it wasn't to sell food. They were advertising or discussing something else. But the result of it is that you were hungry or thirsty, so you would go to the concession lines. That's called subliminal advertising. So subliminal advertising, I've always argued, happens when we put advertisements on our clothing, when we put brands in different places, or anytime we're walking down the street, we are, there's, there's logos everywhere. You don't even realize you're looking at logos half the time. So for Nike, they spent a billion dollars on a 10-year deal in order to produce the uniforms. Do you think that Nike would have spent a billion dollars just to produce the major league uniforms? Where's the bang for their buck in that? How would they do it? They have to get the logo on the jersey. So they went to Major League Baseball and they said, you've never done this except for your international games. When we used to play in Mexico City, Japan, anywhere we'd go, there's always logos on the helmets, there's logos on the jersey, and we were good with it because those were foreign sponsors who were sponsoring the games that were being played on foreign soil, all in the name of trying to spread the game internationally. But now we're talking about domestically. We're talking about uniforms that are our everyday home uniforms. 
there were owners who were opposed to it until the commissioner said, guess what? It's $3 million per team per year in your pocket. All you got to do is put a swoosh on your jersey. Now, the Yankees used to have an opt-out of having anything on their jerseys when they played internationally. There was an opt-out provision if your jersey was one filled with tradition and gravitas. That was never the case with the Marlins. We were a 20-year-old franchise, but the Yankees have been around forever. Obviously, won all those championships. So they opted out of ever having any logos on their precious pinstripes because they felt that that was an affront to the pinstripe. Guess what? Nike closed that loophole. Nike met with baseball, said, I'm happy to give every team $3 million every single year for 10 years, but I want to see the swoosh, and I want to see it on the uni on the front. Don't hide it on the back. Don't put it on the sleeve where players can play around with their sleeves. I want it right there directly over the heart. And that, well, I just pressed the right side of my body. That's strange. Although for everyone who says I don't have a heart, I guess that that would be accurate. It's right over the right side of every jersey. And so when you watch Major League Baseball this year and you see all 30 teams with the same swoosh, you'll remember this moment. You'll remember that the owners are pocketing $3 million, maybe using it for player payroll, using it for other expenses. But they quickly realize that holding on to tradition doesn't really matter when the price is right. So speaking of jerseys, someone uh, DM'd me yesterday. This was a good one. It's uh, it's a segment we do called uh, So You Want to Talk to Samson. All you have to do is actually get to me through my Twitter at David P. Sampson. And uh, I got Bomber in the booth today. Bomber, you can put like on the graphic for the video, you can actually put the Twitter account at David P. Sampson for people to see. So you can DM me. And uh, I'll try to work in, I'll, I'll try to answer your, your DM, and I'll try to work in a segment. Today's one was cool. Word came out that uh, Carmelo Anthony, when he joined the Knicks, took number seven. But he had worn different numbers, all related to different parts of his life. Players do that. We all do that when we choose uniforms, right? You choose it. It's your favorite number. Then it becomes your number. You associate with your number. It's part of your PIN code. It's part of every password you have. Believe me, I'm there. I've done it. Seen it. So Carmelo goes to the Knicks, and there was a player who had number seven on the Knicks, and he couldn't take number 15 or number 22 because those numbers have been retired. Now, there are teams that have unretired numbers before, but the Knicks were not going to unretire Dave DeBusher's number 22 or Earl, the Pearl Monroe's number 15. So Carmelo said, okay, I'll take number seven, 22 minus 15. And then Carmelo Anthony said, well, wait a minute, someone has my number. I got to do something. And so what he did was absolutely the cheapest thing I've ever seen a player do. And this is Carmelo Anthony, I was in the middle of a very big long-term contract at this point. He only gave, and the guy who's, who was wearing number seven is now actually the Warriors broadcaster. He was a Nick at the time, and uh, he was traded in the David Lee trade, as I recall. He offered him three grand. That's it. Three grand. So I've been around a lot of payments for jersey numbers, and three grand is a joke. Players have three grand in meal money that falls out of their pockets like they're in a Dr. Seuss book. I can't believe they did a deal. I've seen watches. I've seen wine collections. I've seen $100,000. I've seen things that would actually knock your knickers off because players are so attached to jersey numbers. I never really understood that sort of attachment. 
because, you know, when Jordan came back, remember when Jordan, number 23, Michael Jordan, he came back and he wore a new number when he came back. I think he changed to number 45. And then he ended up going back to 23 maybe with the Wizards when he switched to them or back to 45. Either way, it doesn't matter. If Michael Jordan could change his number, you know, I'm pretty sure Carmelo Anthony could too. And if you're going to demand your number back, here's how the negotiation goes. You go up to the player who has your number and you say, listen, I was just traded to this team or I just signed as a free agent. I really would like that number. What is it that I can do for you? Hey, you can pay my kids tuition in private school or college. Hey, I'd like a new car. Hey, I'd like a watch. Hey, you know, I'd really like to start a wine collection. Hey, I really would like your meal money for the entire year. Hey, I really would just like a check written to my name that I can deposit in my account. There's all sorts of ways to make a deal. But Anthony took advantage of the fact that the person who had his number, he was, wasn't very well known. And uh, he just gave him three grand and the guy gave up the number. He has the right to say no. How does that work? As the president of a team, there's a few things that I don't get involved in and a few things I do. One thing that I only get involved in after a fight breaks out is placement in the clubhouse of players and assigned uniform numbers. So here's how the system exactly works. And this is so you want to talk to Samson, you want to know how it works, this is it. There's a clubhouse manager who's in charge of the following. He's an equipment manager, so he's in charge of all the equipment for the team to make sure that all the equipment gets on the road and gets to where the team is going, gets on the charter plane, gets off the charter plane, has to make sure that all the luggage, the suitcases, the clothing, the equipment, all of it makes it from the ballpark to the plane, to the hotel, to the players' rooms. And the equipment gets delivered to the ballpark. The clubhouse manager is also in charge of making sure the players get fed. He's making sure that the, the clubhouse is clean. He does all the laundry. Now, clubhouse managers hire people under them. It's an entire fiefdom down there in the clubhouse. But the fact is, they are in charge of that area. Also, they assign lockers. You would think that that would not be a big deal. Well, I think back, to, please, to your elementary school or your high school. How crazed were you about your locker placement? that you wanted to be near your friends, or you wanted to be near the cool people, or if you're an athlete, near the athletes, if you're a thespian, you want to be near the other theater lovers. Well, guess what? In the big leagues, it's the same thing. These players have certain requests for where their lockers want to be, and it's up to a clubhouse manager to assign lockers. He does it by actually doing a, a, like, a like a puzzle where you have your locker room, you know where the lockers are. Some lockers are bigger than others. Those are for the catchers or for the true veterans who tip the most money. At the end of every season, clubhouse managers get tipped by the players. And the players who are making more money often tip more. Some are cheap, some are not. Those who are not tip the clubby more. And that clubby then keeps his request in mind sort of at the top of the list. Picture going to a good restaurant and you can't get in, but you stoop the uh, maitre d' 100 bucks and you get whatever table you want. That's the concept here. You take care of the clubby and he'll take care of you. You tell him where you want your locker. You tell him who you want next to you and you tell him who you don't want to be near. This happens. It is just like a high school clubhouse, locker room. 
It's like a, a sewing circle of gossip where you've got a player say, listen, I don't want to be anywhere near this other player. The clubhouse manager then will place the players apart. Then once that's done, the president and the GM take a look at what the whole package is. Where is everyone's locker? What's everyone's uniform number? Any uniform number given by a clubhouse manager to a player that is numbers 1 through 10 has to be approved by the team. Because 1 through 10 are the very significant numbers for every franchise. Many of them have all of those numbers retired, but a few. The Marlins don't have any numbers retired. We used to have one, and it got unretired. It was number 5 for the first ever team president, Carl Barger, who died before the team could ever play a game as an expansion team. We unretired that number to give it to Logan Morrison in a move that I regret completely because Logan was not worthy of having that done for him. And I'm in touch with Logan still, and I've told him that, that we shouldn't have done that. So any number 1 through 10 that's going to be assigned, the clubby has to get prior permission. Any number above 10, the clubby can give to any player he wants, and the players can negotiate with the clubby. The players can negotiate with other players. We only want to be involved after the fact. Numbers 1 through 10, we're going to be involved before. Location of lockers, we're only going to be involved if there's a dispute, but we're always going to see the final markup, the final design of where the clubby has it. So the players now know, and they've always known, that the clubbies have a lot of power. So they take care of their clubbies, they're in touch with their clubbies, because without them, the players don't get anything that they want. Thank you for playing. So you want to talk to Samson? Hope that answered your question about why players pay, what they pay, and how clubhouses work internally. How? So we're closing in on the decade. This one's strange. I, 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 I've done this actually. I, ch- you know what? I changed my mind. It's not strange. The Golden State Warriors were named the franchise of the decade. They produced a video and they kept Kevin Durant out of it. Um, That sounds petty, doesn't it? It sounds totally ridiculous. And it was noticed on Twitter. And the funny part is I've done it. I've done videos. I've done year-end recaps. I was never the franchise of a decade. But even after 03, if there were a player who I didn't like or who ended his term with us on a bad note, I would stoop that low and be that petty and not put that player in highlight videos. The way it works is you've got your marketing department that puts together the video, but it gets approved by the team president. But when there's something so significant, sometimes the team president calls the marketing department first and says, hey, you're going to be putting together a video. There will not be Heath Bell in any video. Sort of that type of thing. And uh, what the Warriors did... People are going crazy, but I get it. The Warriors said, you know what? Kevin Durant won two MVPs, finals MVPs for us. Two rings we have because of Kevin Durant. But I'm not thrilled with what happened in his last year. I'm not thrilled with how he left in free agency for the New Jersey Nets. I'm really not thrilled with anything that went on at the end. So I'm not going to give him any love. Is it petty? Yes. I'm trying to think if the Warriors will regret it after five years looking back. I think they will because I look back on videos that I have copies of and I think back to decisions I was making and I tried so hard not to make emotional decisions. I tried to remove all emotion, but sometimes things get to you. Sometimes there's nothing you can do. And the people who run the Warriors, it's still bitter. It's still fresh. If Durant had left the team in 2015 
and five years later, a decade video is being made, Durant's in the video. But because he left so close to the end of the decade, that's why Durant's not in it. Now, will the Warriors fall victim to the social media mob? Will they read all the comments? I never used to. Didn't matter to me. Now it does. Now I pay attention to what you all say because it's meaningful to me. And uh, I tried to keep blinders on when I was running a team. But if the Warriors pay attention to it, are they going to recut a video? Are they going to then admit that they did a petty thing and put Durant back in the video? I can't wait to find out. I really can't. You know, what? Well, people are coming to me on this issue too, and I'm not happy about it, to tell you the truth. Um, let's talk about Noah's song. You may not know Noah's song, but you're going to now. Noah's song is a player who, was, who went to Navy and then was drafted by the Red Sox and played minor league baseball for the Red Sox and now has to serve in the Navy for two years and after those two years can then resume and become a professional athlete. People are losing their minds over this. They're wondering why it is that Noah Song cannot get an exemption to be a professional baseball player right now. Now, before you all go crazy and say how unpatriotic I am, let me explain the reality of this situation. There's a new law that just passed. The law says that any member of one of the armed service branches who played sports for that branch, which would be Noah Song playing baseball for Navy. It would be David Robinson, the admiral, playing basketball for Navy. Any athlete who is going to be a professional athlete has the right to skip the two years of service and become that professional athlete. But it only starts with the class of 2020. Noah Song is in the class of 2019. So he has appealed basically tried to get a ruling from the Navy that says, is there any way that I could be pro now and skip the two years? And the Navy still has to hear the case, but the Academy gave its suggestion to the Department of Defense and the Department of the Navy saying, listen, this rule does not apply to Noah Song. He's the class of 19, not the class of 20. We can't make an exception for him. He's got to serve for two years, and then he can rejoin the Red Sox organization. The Red Sox are taking the high road. Their farm director gave a quote saying, we're completely supportive of the U.S. Armed Forces, and we are perfectly fine with this prospect of ours. He's actually a prospect. The irony is, if he weren't a prospect, the player development group wouldn't even comment. No one would care. No one would hear about it. This guy, Noah Song, could actually be a major leaguer. So does the two years make a difference? It didn't for David Robinson. Does it make a difference for a pitcher? Well, when a pitcher loses two years of development, it's a very big deal. So in terms of his professional career, it is deleteriously impacted by this decision. That said, when you go to Navy undergrad, you know that you've got the two-year service commitment. That's not a surprise to you. It's not like they just sprung this upon their graduates and their students I don't like it when people try to get out of something that they knew about going into it just because their circumstances have changed. If the rules change once you've agreed to play a game, then I agree you have the right to stop playing that game. 
But if you start playing a game under a set of rules, those set of rules stay the same, but then your own circumstances change, so you then question those set of rules, me no likey. Me no likey. So Noah, serve the two years, you're not going to win your appeal, and then come back and try to make the Red Sox. It's not our problem that you became a prospect when you weren't positive that you were going to. So, last night, it was the Survivor finale. Survivor. Let's talk about it, please. So, it's been a very complicated season 39, and I'm going to mention everything about this finale. I'm going to talk about the season, but I want to talk about what was going on a little bit when the finale was supposed to start at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Well, the impeachment hearings were going on in the House And there were still comments being made, and the votes had not yet happened. And it was about 7.50 Eastern. Survivor was about to start eight minutes from now. And everyone on Twitter was going crazy. Is Survivor going to be on? Do we have to watch this impeachment? Do we, are we going to miss the finale, which is what we wait for twice a year, every year since the year 2000? People losing their minds. So CBS, at 8 o'clock, announces to the world hey, we're going to stay live on CBS Network News, online at cbs.com, but we're going to go to Survivor. Then during the course of Survivor, they took a special report break when the orders of impeachment had been voted positively and the president had been impeached, the third president in our history to ever be impeached, only three. As a matter of fact, how many of you know that today is the anniversary of when Clinton got impeached? It happened on December 19th. And today happens to be December 19th. So CBS cut in for a special report. And they did a long special report. Yet they said at the beginning of the report, don't worry, you won't miss a minute of Survivor. Can you imagine how guilty I felt that that statement mattered to me? That the biggest news of the year is going on. It's history. It's history that half of the people don't even understand, so I want to explain what actually happened. How many people thought that being impeached means you're no longer the president? He got impeached. Well, that's not actually how it works. What happens is in the House, remember the midterm elections that many of you don't vote on because you're wondering that you don't care that a Senate race matters or that a House race actually matters? Here's why voting matters. Because during times like this, the votes that go on on Capitol Hill in the House and the Senate They actually mean quite a lot to this country, which is why you should always vote. Rock the vote, man. So the House votes and they do a debate and then they vote on whether or not to actually pass the articles of impeachment. An article of impeachment means that they are charging the president, the sitting president, with high crimes and misdemeanors. And then that goes to the Senate. The Senate has 100 people, two senators per state, And the 100 senators actually hold a trial, a trial of the sitting president. And if the senators convict the president by a three-quarters vote, that's when the president loses office. How many people were contacting me saying, did the president just, is he no longer the president? No. So CBS tells people, we're going to cut in. We're going to tell you your president just got impeached. We're not going to explain what that means, but they didn't. But I just did. But then on top of that, they said, don't worry, you won't miss any survivor. And I feel like crap because I was happy to hear that. 
I didn't want to miss any of the Survivor 39 finale. I didn't want to miss when how they were going to name Tommy the winner, even though I figured he'd win. The school teacher from Long Island who won the million dollars, who took Nora and then Dean ended up, the three of them in the final three, when Nora made Dean make fire against Lauren. Neither of them could make fire. Do you know how hard it is to make fire? When I went on Survivor, I practiced making fire with Flint before I went on the island. I didn't get voted off first because I couldn't make fire. I never even had a chance to make fire because I never had Flint. It's way harder than you think to get the magnesium off the Flint. And I ended up, you end up cutting your finger and it's just a disaster. And this, you're making fire actually a tribal council for the right to possibly win a million dollars. So the million dollars goes to Tommy, but Survivor 39 will always be known as the season that featured the inappropriate touching by one of the candidates named Dan, who was thrown off the show. The first time ever a contestant was thrown off Survivor. Thrown off, he didn't even go to the finale. And for the first time ever, the finale last night that you all watched was not live. For the first time, they had to pre-tape it because they were worried that some of the cast members may say something that they wouldn't want to have directly on the air. Normally, live shows, there's a 10-second delay in case somebody says, fuck or shit. Anytime you say that, there's a 10-second delay, it goes to a beep, and then you move right along. But this was taped in the afternoon. It's unheard of. The good news is Survivor 40 debuts in February. It's an all-winter season. And believe me, CBS, Survivor, Jeff Probst, they want to move on to season 40 so badly that it's hard to even imagine. Congratulations, Tommy. Hope you learned about impeachment. That's Survivor 39. Pick of the day. Are you, are you betting the picks with me or not? I'm just curious because we don't lose that often. I don't keep a running tally like the Grand Slam pick because the guy at CBS Sports HQ who was in charge of the Grand Slam pick, he didn't pick them, but he had the animation. Uh, he's now in Connecticut, still at CBS Sports HQ, but I'm down here in Fort Lauderdale. And for what, it's 82 and sunny where I am. How you doing up there, Ryan Stryker? How's it going in Connecticut? Do you like the ice storm? Good? Yeah, yes, I do have suntan lotion on. In any case, we're not keeping track, but you probably could. Maybe we will if I keep winning. Last night's pick, Celtics over the Mavericks. I told you why I took that game and why it made sense to take the Celtics, and we were right. Today's game as well makes sense to me. Why would I be going against the Lakers? Why would I take the Bucks minus four over the Los Angeles Lakers? And the reason is this. This game matters more to the Bucks than the Lakers. And when you can find a game that matters more to one team, you take that team. When you can find a game that matters more to a team that has an MVP coming off a loss a couple games ago where Giannis was furious to have lost that game. Do you remember the game that he lost to the Bucks? Well, here's my point. This could be an NBA Finals preview. LeBron James has been there before. He's got rings, multiple rings, like three of them. He knows that this is a regular season game that at the end of the day is not going to make a huge amount of difference in where the Bucks or the Lakers end up seated in their conferences. But to the Bucks, this is what happens when you're trying to overcome playoff failures, when you're trying to make it to the finals, when you're trying to win your first ring. You take games during the course of a regular season that may not matter as much and you make them matter more. You take them more seriously. You approach them a little differently. The Bucks are going to do that tonight. I'm sorry for all you Laker fans. Bucks four over Lakers. It'll be a hell of a game to watch. Wait to see. I like I like my wait to sees. 
This one's interesting. For those of you not down here in, in Florida, where the Miami Heat play, it's called the American Airlines Arena. And American Airlines vo- said they had a sponsorship deal through 2019. So their deal to name American Airlines Arena expires on December 31st, 2019. So the American Airlines Arena will have a new name come January 1. The question is, what will that name be? Why has there not been a new announcement made for a naming rights sponsor? The reason is the county of Miami-Dade is now in charge of selling the naming rights. Can you imagine county employees, any government officials of any government, the county where you live, in charge of going out and trying to name a building? It's really far better left in the private sector. But the Heat don't care because the Heat are getting their money anyway. So right now, if the name of the building has no sponsor, the county of Miami-Dade is out $2 million per year because the Heat are getting their same $2 million no matter what every year. So the county is feverishly trying to sell naming rights to this building. They will not get it done by January 1st. And here is exactly what they're going to call it. I did a tweet about this. I did a poll because I thought it would be funny to call it Marlins Park Dos or Carlos Jimenez Arena, who's the name of the mayor who's trying to sell the naming rights because his ego would tell you that he'd want that name on the arena. But the way to see is that the name of this arena will be the Miami-Dade County Arena. That's how unoriginal it will be until they have a chance to sell it. Wait to see. The Miami Heat will be playing in the Miami-Dade County Arena. But remember, for the county... It's totally about the business of trying to raise revenue in order to help their budget. And for me, it's nothing personal. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.